Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black, and my co-host, Stephen Gillespie, back with me to go over the next section of his big board. That's right. We're releasing this podcast on a Tuesday. That means from now, again, all the way through till the end of the draft, we're going to have big board podcasts queued up every Mm. Tuesday. And we went through the first section of Steven's board last week that we wanted to go through 60 through 45. Although I think we're going to be slightly touching on the, the 45th ranking in a few seconds. Maybe. Steve, Steven will, will take over that one, but really we wanted to focus on 44 through 30. So again, counting down from 60 all the way to one, this is kind of like your mid second round rankings all the way through to the early second round of Steven's board. So this draft, man, this draft's going to have a ton of variants. I, when I was talking with Chuck, anybody who listens to the podcast that we just released with, with Chuck and Darts, I kind of made the proclamation that I think there's going to be some misses in kind of like the late lottery all the way through to like the back end of the first round. But I think there's going to be some smart NBA teams that recoup a lot of value in like the 25 through 45 range. So even though we might not be talking first round guys and some people out there might be like, Oh, why am I listening to this podcast? I want to hear about the first (laughs) round. I want to hear about the top names. Well, I can almost assure you that between this section on Steven's board and then when we get into the early part of next week's episode, and then once we go through a similar section on my board, I can almost guarantee you there are going to be legitimate NBA contributors that come out of this, these sections of our boards respectively. So I consider this an important episode, Stephen. How are you doing tonight, man? You ready to do this? Yeah, man. I'm ready to get it going. I'm doing well. You know, we were talking about how players are just continually entering the draft. And I li- if for people watching, I literally pulled all my hair out because players will not stop entering the draft and making me watch film on them. So I've had to make adjustments to my board. Nathan, you you spoke on just a second ago that We're going to start at 45 because we talked about Leonard Miller last week. And you said you were so proud of me that I didn't initially just vault him up to my top 30. Still haven't done that, but he is up a little bit since I've got to watch more film, listen to more analysis and things like that on him. So today we're going to be starting with prospect number 45 because we didn't talk about him yet. We were going to anyway, but now he's at a lower position, that being. Justin Lewis out of Marquette, the forward out of Marquette. So we're starting off with the bang here because I know that Justin Lewis has some fans at no ceiling. And Nathan, we talk about this all the time. I mentioned it on the last episode that the margin of talent between prospects like 20 through 45 isn't very significant at all. So Just because I have Justin Lewis all the way down here at 45, I do see a pathway for him to be a good NBA player. It's just how difficult is that pathway? How valuable is the role that he's going to play in the NBA compared to the absolute highest of highest from some of these other prospects? Justin Lewis has a great build. Like, he's very strong. He's very talented. He's a better three-point shooter than I think memory will serve people. Like, you can go and look at the numbers and be like, okay, like he's an okay three-point shooter. Then you go and actually watch more film. You're like, okay, like he actually has a stroke. And then you consider him defensively, and you would like to think, okay, he can guard threes and fours, maybe some fives depending on the matchup. Maybe he can play some five himself because of how strong he is. But ultimately, doing 
not really having much equity with the ball in his hand as a forward, I think is going to hurt him a little bit. Um, how consistent is that shot going to be? How diverse is his shot diet? And again, like what else can he bring to the team other than just being like a role man slash stationary three-point shooter? That's why I have him here at 45, Nathan. No, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think I'm probably going to end up with him a little higher than you on my board, but not a ton higher. I don't, I don't sure. have a first round grade on him either. And the, the reason behind that is he is going to be more of a developmental prospect. That I think people give him credit for he's, he's really caught in, in, in a little bit of an awkward place positionally. Like he's the six, seven, 235 240 pound forward like he has that thick build almost mm -hmm. almost reminds me of some of the things that people said about Wendell Carter when Wendell Carter was coming out of college and sure. a, a similar similar type of build obviously not 100% the same I mean Wendell Carter is a center but just in terms of that thickness to them that slows them down a little bit yep. um, I, I don't fully buy into Justin's feet being uh, a huge factor for him on either end of the floor. I think it's going to limit his mobility and in, in guarding different positions on the defensive end. And then offensively, I just don't see how he moves like some of these guys. So you might be able to masquerade out in like that four, three type of role and then play some wing. I think Justin Lewis is more of like a big when we use the yeah. word forward leading towards big. So there are some nice skills to work with. Um, there is a little bit of defensive versatility. He can definitely help protect the rim a little bit from the weak side defensively and then offensively very nice pick and pop type option um pick and roll pick and pop type option he's he mm -hmm. does in my opinion set good enough screens where that's going to come into play for him at the nba level i think if you're drafting him you want him to develop a little more on the ball sauce that to me is is that's years down the road i don't think his handle is is there quite yet nor do i think some of the movement again ultimately fits with that type of role i think if that's how you want him to play, you got to work with him on his body a little bit, have to improve that ball handling. And then maybe we start seeing a little more of that shot creation. He can hit like a one dribble pull up, but that yep. in my opinion is about the extent of what he can do right now. But again, if you, if you develop him more on the big Avenue, I think there's definitely some value to be had on both sides of the ball. So that's why I have him as a second round grade, much more of like a developmental prospect in my opinion, than somebody who's ready to, you know, come out and, and produce right away in the NBA. Yeah. And it sounds like you and I see him similarly. And that's something that we spoke about on the last podcast It's more. So let's get the evaluations right. And then, you know, if we want to get picked on for having a guy eight spots lower than maybe we should have, then, okay, I sure. might take that lump on the head, but as long as we're seeing this prospect the same way, that makes me feel better about myself because at least we'll both be wrong if he hits. Right. So there we go for that. All right, so now we're going to start the show with where we should have started it if it wasn't for Leonard Miller's, uh, a Leonard Miller film study, that being prospect number 44. And I'm just going to throw out this, you know, precursor here. The next two prospects could completely outdo where I put them, but I'm starting to reward more production instead of potential. And I think that I even spoke on this on, on my latest, uh, you know, article for the weekend warrior about ageism and it being gross. Like sometimes we can fall in love with guys being younger than being freshmen because of their timeline and the potential that if you take them younger, they can mature at a higher level, therefore be better sooner. Maybe, I don't know, but at some point we got to start rewarding production. And that's why I have Caleb Houston out of Michigan here at 44. Now, early on in the season due to where a lot of, you know, preseason projections had him, 
him. I even saw him as high as like number five for some places, like reputable draft, you know, uh, outlets had him that high. But... He, he was, yeah, he, he was a lottery pick for, for the yeah. majority of people before the year. Yeah, absolutely. So now watching him, he didn't really live up to that at all. And, you know, I'm going back and I'm watching prospects who can come in and play the role that he is projected to. I don't even know if he's really going to stay in. Like, he might test and come back. There's already rumors of that circulating. So, three-point shooter that really didn't hit that well, didn't really defend that well, wasn't wasn't impressed with him with the ball in his hand, rebounded decently for his position, but didn't blow me away there. Michigan is one of these schools where everyone just kind of plays a role a little bit. So, maybe mm-hmm. that has to do with, you know, the output that we got from him. But I didn't really walk away from this season all that impressed with him. Maybe his, you know, preseason stuff can come back to bite me in the butt, but I have him at 44, Nathan. So really, I mean, we can kind of lump in the two guys together because you have you have yeah. Max Christie at, at 43, not to steal too much of your thunder, but no, it, please, Caleb, yeah. That's I, I mean, I I'll let you say some some kind words about Christie because I would have more kind words to say about him. I think if we're gonna bet okay. on either of the two living up to their potential, I would definitely take. Christy at this point over Houston and the reason behind that is I just think Christy's going to have more on ball stuff potentially at the NBA level like I don't hate him when he turns the corner off pick and rolls I think he's got a nice floater game that he can go to um, and then off ball I trust him being deployed in ways where you can get him off movement not just to catch and shoot the ball but also on cuts getting him downhill to the basket and again either being able to finish with that runner or finish through contact at the basket I think he's going to get there six six much better body in my opinion, even though Houston's a little bit bigger at six, eight, he yep. just, he, he lacks some of the ability to be able to contort in the air and finish at different angles and also finish through guys. I don't see the contact and the strength portion being as much of a problem for Christie. Um, but yeah, that, that's really where it comes back to with me for, for Caleb Houston is this guy did not show me the ability to be able to turn the corner. Well, off of pick and roll when he had the ball in his hands, a little bit slow getting downhill. And then when he gets to the basket, you can meet him with size or guys of similar stature. They're stronger than him. They can push him and knock him off of that shot. And he just can't get to some of the same angles that we would expect him to be able to get to if that was a role that he was going to be much more comfortable at the NBA level, having the ball in his hands more. So if we're really diagnosing him as like a movement shooter and the shot's not falling and he's not holding his own defensively at any sort of position one way or the other, and some of the off-ball defensive stuff becomes really inconsistent as well, like it does for a lot of young guys. What are we really projecting him to be able to do in the NBA if the shot's not falling? So I, I agree with you. He could certainly outperform more of his draft position, but I would much rather take a swing on somebody like Christie, um, who, who I just think is going to be able to do more at the NBA level, even if his shot isn't exactly falling um, all, all year round. Because we saw Christie defend much better than the, absolutely at the at, at Michigan State too so yeah and I was going to touch on that too I like Christie's point of attack defensive potential at at the NBA level and you talk about him being smaller but a better athlete he's more explosive he's more he has a quicker twitch than Caleb Houston and that was something that kind of disappointed me was everyone can kind of fall in love with and, and this is me included Nathan I, I'll let you speak for yourself I can kind of have a tendency to see okay, he's tall and he can shoot. Like that's what everyone in the NBA wants, but you also have to parlay that with good athleticism. And I don't think that Houston has that yet. I don't even know if he's in the best shape that that we need to see him at. You know, at, at Michigan, he looked 
he just looked like he was almost going through the motions. He didn't look like he was a guy that had been putting in like tremendous amount of work on his body, like maybe studying the playbook, maybe finding spots on the court that he's comfortable. But I would like to see him maybe in a little bit better condition. You know, maybe that helps him and separates and helps that that kind of midair like change of the shot that you were speaking of with him. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'd call him like a bad athlete, but I just, I just not a poor, not a poor athlete, but I'm saying like, I think that we can envision him being more athletic with a little bit better conditioning, if that makes sense. It it does. I just don't, I just don't think he's ever going to have that burst off his initial first step that he would really need to be able to turn the corner in situations where he'd have the ball in his hands a little more. Like I, I just, after watching enough of him, I just don't think that's ever going to be there for him. So again, it's, it's maybe getting himself in better condition, Steven, to your point, getting his stamina up more mm-hmm. and just getting a little quicker in terms of, you know, darting around the court, right. Running off movement, being able to get himself open and then turn, catch, turn and shoot. Like, yeah, that can absolutely happen. Yeah. But just in terms of like the burst, I don't mm-hmm. see that ever improving for him. Yeah. And I think too, what kind of hurt my perception of Houston all season long was what is he doing? Or what are we projecting him to possibly able to do that we're not already seeing a guy like Tyler Burton, who I don't have on my list. And he's one of these guys that I kind of want to put in my top 60, but I just can't bring myself to doing it. But we have Caleb is, you know, the, the joke that Maxwell always makes, you know, it's like, why do we need Caleb Houston when we have Tyler Burton at home? You, you know what I mean? Like Tyler Burton kind of already does everything that we want Caleb Houston to do. He's just younger, and we can kind of fall in love with the age, which I spoke to earlier. We, we can, and I think the last point I'll say on, on Christy before we move into some of the other guys here is yeah. that I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if somebody still took, like, a top 20 swing on Max Christie. Like, I, <laughs> I, I have I have Christy higher than, than you do. I, I sure. honestly can't remember where I have Houston on my latest board, but I know I have Christy a little higher. It would not shock me if somebody still bought in on a top 20 grade on him it would shock me if somebody was still that high on Caleb Houston and they're taking him in like the top 20, top 25 range. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily in love with where I have Christie, but again, you know, like we'll get into some of these other names and I feel more confident in what they project to do. So just to recap, we had Justin Lewis at 45, Houston at 44, Max Christie at 43, which rolls us right into Keon Ellis, a prospect that I had written about during uh, you know, the weekend warrior keying in on Keon Ellis. He's got an NBA level or ready game. You know, he's one of these three and D prospects, meaning that he can shoot the three. He can do a little bit extra when chase off the line. And obviously he can defend. So looking at Alabama, we were talking last week, how disappointed we were with what we saw from JD Davison. Keon Ellis is an NBA caliber prospect. It's just how high is his high? You know, I feel like he's going to be a very safe prospect. Maybe that warrants moving him up a little bit higher. But, you know, if you look at the three-point shooting, he can do it from pretty much anywhere on the court. You look at his defense at, at the SEC, he was asked to take on some really tough assignments, and he did it and did everything that he could. You know, when you consider the backcourt that that Alabama had, you know, you had J.D. Davison and Shackelford, and then obviously, uh, you know, you had Keon Ellis contributing there too. So looking at everything that Alabama was dealing with, Keon Ellis performing at the level that he did defensively, I think speaks volumes to him. And then obviously his three-point potential, if you look on Synergy, they're all beautiful numbers there. They're all flattering, speaking to how deadly of a 
outside shot that he has. So I have him at 42, Nathan. This is probably the only prospect that I think you and I just have like a major disagreement on. And okay. it's not, it's not that I think you're, you're finding anything wrong in your evaluation. This is honestly one of those guys. I just don't see it with. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, I know he's six, six, he has length. I'm not in love with the rest of his body composition. He can defend multiple positions at, mm-hmm. at a really good level. He's competitive. He gets after it just offensively there's just there's still something about the shooting that i don't trust and okay. when, we, when we project an nba a, a guy coming to the nba to be like a three and d like you really have to shoot the three at a high level man like you really need to bring that to the table and there's just there's just something about the shooting that i don't trust like he he did to, to his credit first of all he's an older guy coming in i think he there's a there's a chance he might be 24 I think he draft, is. I right? haven't looked if at I'm, his numbers. I, yeah. I went through and then, and, and you and I were, were adjusting some of the ages in our database. I think he's going to be 24 at the very least. He'd be 23 on draft night. So he is an older guy coming in already, but I just, I, I would have expected more from him offensively at this point in his career. And the fact that I still have questions about his shooting and some of the other things he brings to the table offensively. I know the defense is awesome. I don't know if it's going to be like, I don't know, Herb Jones type awesome in the NBA or Another like Jose Alvarado type awesome. Like, like the Pelicans really did themselves some favors hitting on those two guys and buying in on the defense and just hoping that they can do enough offensively to justify having them on the court for their defensive value. I guess there's a, there, there's a way that Keon Ellis could get there defensively to be that important to an NBA team, but I just, I just don't know if I'm buying the offense at that level. And maybe, maybe there just truly is something that I'm missing. He just never really jumped out on the page for me uh, off the TV screen for me offensively as much as he did defensively. So maybe it's just, I'm only buying one half of the prospect. Maybe I'm just getting the evaluation wrong and that's okay. There's usually like one or two guys, every draft class that for whatever reason, I just can't see it. And I can't buy in a lot of the time. I, I, I kind of end up being right about those guys like if I didn't understand it like there's usually a reason why they don't work out but I'm leaving it open for me to be wrong about this guy Steven because again the defense has looked that good not just by the numbers but also on tape and there are there are a lot of other numbers that that check out for him like the fact that I say I don't trust the shot yet it stayed virtually around the same percentage 36.6 percent on much more significant volume compared to his first year at Alabama like there is something to be said uh, about some of the improvements that he made. It's just, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm personally just not able to bring it all together. I think that the Alabama team just overall leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. And again, considering that everything he did, if you look at the size of some of the guys that he played with, Shackleford, Quinterly, Davison, like those are He, those he had are to not, cover a lot of ground defensively. He had, to, he had to cover a lot of ground defensively yeah. and then – the errors and decision-making that he had to do with when J.D. Davison was on the court, the, you know, the fact that, you know, Shackelford never saw a shot that he didn't like, you know, I, I loved Quinterly. Like I, I had Quinterly with him. He also hasn't seen a shot that he doesn't like either, but. <laughs> also hasn't seen another shot that he hasn't liked. So if you consider all of that, you know, and, and Gray on that team too, he's a trucker. So there's really not a lot of, you know, ball movement on this team, but. I, you know, in my, in my deep film study for him, there was a lot of off ball stuff that I loved, you know, shot relocation, even the ability to put the ball on his ground, make whip passes. I'm not saying that's going to be the majority of what he does in the NBA, but 
he 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 has a little bit of um, dynamic playmaking in his game that can help offset whatever pressure you know a defense might put on him on the line. So I, think I was wrong. I apologize. I was thinking of somebody else. It's going to be twenty two on draft night. So that's oh. that's my fault. I posted not, not not as damning <laughs> as like twenty four, but he's still an older older guy because he transferred in Alabama from um, a smaller school. So. Absolutely. And, and just another thing I'll say real quick before we move on, you know, on the on no ceilings where you can read my latest weekend warrior piece. I wrote about ageism and how it's gross. And Nathan, you and I both, we don't believe in practicing ageism in the draft. If you go back and look at teams that took chances um, and, and yes, they were chances on some older guys, you know, in late first, early second round draft picks, teams that weren't even necessarily good at the time, but they made these picks turning it around, you know, what makes good teams good and bad teams bad? It simply comes down to making some of these safer plays. You know, you spoke to this when we were on the OKC podcast where you were talking about, let's take some singles, let's take some doubles, you know, let's fortify our roster roster a little bit. Herb Jones, you know, Jalen Brunson, like guys that are falling out in the playoffs right now, weren't necessarily projected to, to be able to do that type of stuff, right? So you're looking at a guy like Keon Ellis, and we'll talk about some of these other players later, like, Sure, like the the teenage guys, they can be, you know, they can get your blood flowing a little bit. You can see more of a long-term future. But I think that when we look at college prospects and we say, like, this guy's 23, we think that he's old for the earth. But then you watch Herb Jones ball out in the playoffs and you're like, this kid's got a lot of potential. Like, he can still grow and get better. Like, it, it's almost like they jump through a, a portal and go into another dimension. And then they go from being old to young. And we're just like, why can't we look at them like that when they're in college, you know? And and that's why I wouldn't I wouldn't fault anybody for taking Keon Ellis with with second round pick like the just the type of archetype that he falls into to not to knock one off the draft Twitter bingo card already but the, the six six plus size wingspan if the three point shot does come around and then the the defense to be able to cover so much ground on the perimeter potentially at the NBA level like yeah that that's the type of guy you want to take a swing with um, with a second round pick maybe doesn't have the same upside as some of the other names that we'll talk about in later portions of these podcast episodes, but that, that, that is the type of guy, like if you believe in him, maybe just cause he's not in, in that range on my board, if same time, if you believe in him and that's where you want to take him, I got zero problems with it. Right on. So we'll roll in right into number 41. Trevor Keel is a guy who I had early on in the season, kind of like middle to late first. And as the season kind of progressed, he was top to- 10 on ESPN. That one point, was- man, top 10. If the draft was after his first game, he might have been a top five pick, you know, like he he had a big performance early on in the season. And that was kind of damning for him, kind of like Kendall Brown, a guy that we might talk about later. He had a 10 assist game and everyone's just like, oh, look out like this guy is going to be able to do a whole bunch of everything. I don't know if he had a three assist game after that 10 assist game, you know. So same thing with Trevor Keels, like he had significant moments, but there's still a lot that he's got to work out. You know, he was a, he was largely touted as a three point, you know, just sniper coming into the season. And he's, he's a capable three point shooter. I'm not saying write him off that he's not going to be able to shoot, but there wasn't a lot of evidence in college to support what we saw in high school and kind of the same thing with Caleb Houston. I don't know if I trust his decision-making as a lead guard, but Holy crap, this guy can defend his tail off. Yep. And and watching him as an on-ball defender, there's some things to like as a team defender. You like the fact that he might even be able to defend the three on his best days. So, you know, rebounding is also another thing. Pushing the break is something that you can talk yourself into with 
with kills, but you got to wonder, you know, is this guy as a guard going to be able to help run pick and rolls? Do you trust him to be a spot up shooter? Anything else in his game that you feel confident with other than him being able to hold his own on a second unit against another guard to spell whoever he is relieving for a couple minutes. That's why I have him here at 41, Nathan. He's he, he's a linebacker in a guard's body, very similar to Luke Dort. Um, that that was, I think, an easy comp for everybody to be able to make if he's at his best on his best days, but he just couldn't put it together consistently over the port for the course of the whole year. And there, there, there was some injury stuff in there that definitely limited um, his development throughout the course of the year. Obviously the shooting was inconsistent all year, only rated out in the 32nd percentile on spot ups. If we were getting the Trevor Keels out of high school, who was a much better shooter than what he showed at Duke, this would yep. probably be a different story, but because of some of those inconsistencies, because he's not one of these like isolation type of bucket getters, the jump shot's not falling. If he's not able to go to like a runner shot, if he's not finishing as well around the basket as we would expect him to be able to finish as well with that body type only in the 41st percentile around the basket. What did he really show us that he can do on a consistent basis offensively other than maybe he's a better shooter than the numbers would give him credit for during his freshman year. And maybe there's a little more passing creativity to be able to tap into whether he's maybe he's not a primary ball handler at the NBA level. Maybe somebody you can got run off of actions, get him going as like a secondary type of ball handler. Maybe there's some more stuff to unlock there, but I think the evaluation that we have on him after his freshman year, it's much more projection and potential then we have firm evidence, which is going to be a really a key factor with a lot of these guys that we're talking about on this episode of the podcast and maybe into next week's edition of the Big Board Podcast. It's a team that a lot of us scouts are struggling with the, the between us to some yeah. guys who are getting paid to do this as their full-time job, the guys <laughs> working in, in NBA offices. Like these, these are the types of questions we have and it's why I can picture a number of these guys ultimately deciding to come back to school. And it would, it would not shock me if kills ended up coming back for a sophomore year, because that Duke team's looking loaded already. Like, yep. He would be surrounded with a very similar bar of talent that he had this year. And if he can just put more consistency together, surrounded by that better talent where he can make plays for others and they're going to be able to finish those plays. It's not like he's playing with guys who won't be able to take and make shots. Like, Maybe we're coming back and, and getting keels in that like late lottery type of conversation next year compared to where he's at now and a lot of people's boards, which is like, you know, late first round, early second round, the mid second round. Yeah. And I got a question for you, Nathan, you, and we can even project out if he does come back next season, it's going to be much of the same because they're, they're in talks to get AJ green out of Northern Iowa. They already have a strong recruiting class. You know, that Duke's going to be loaded, right? So I have a question for you, particularly about kills. We see on Duke that, you know, he had to compete with ball handling duties with guys like, you know, Wendell Moore Jr., Paolo Boncaro, and even Jeremy Roach, right? So there's four ball handlers on that team predominantly. You know, A.J. Griffin didn't even get a chance, get a lot of opportunities to create with the ball in his hands, which may affect his ultimate, you know, where he ends up, you know, projection-wise. If he was doing this on Kentucky, where they always get that benefit of the doubt with their guards, that they share ball handling duties, and maybe there's more to his bag than, than he was able to lay out, do you think that, that if it was just in Kentucky Vice Duke, would that help his draft stock? No, I think he'd, I think he'd be in the okay. same place. Um, 
The one thing I'll say, and we had this conversation last week, Stephen, and it's, it's a similar theme that we can probably run through all the way through these big board podcasts, is that if you come back to school, you should be coming back to school because you have more to show in your bag, Absolutely. not necessarily just being better off of what you showed us you may be able to do this past year. Like Trevor Keels, to his credit, did show a lot of creativity, both scoring and passing when he had the ball in his hands out of pick and roll sets. Um, it was really more of these other types of actions or him being more of an off-ball player where he really struggled where if he can come back and he can prove that, no, I'm a primary guy. I can be a point guard. I deserve to have the ball in my hands to be making decisions for everybody else and improve and, and really prove that he can do that in more of a volume role. That's worthwhile to come back for. And, and having that type of skill set and proving you can do it at volume and being worth NBA level touches and that type of role that would absolutely skyrocket his draft stock. And it would be interesting to see how the new regime at Duke uses him because, you know, we, we know that coach K is gone and there's a lot of people who just believe that coach K is more of a recruiter now than he was actually X's and O's. And, you know, we saw them run the same place that into the ground all tournament long. So, but I mean, like coming, coming back, like Jeremy Roach is going to be the point guard next year. Like you're telling me that that Trevor Keels at his best, maybe couldn't beat out, jeremy roach for a lot of those ball handling duties like i don't know man aj green if he transfers there like that's that's going to be a nasty backcourt if they were able to land him and 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 kills come back like that Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's a lot of things that you could be excited about for uh, duke's future here especially with kills if kills comes back excuse me but we'll move on now to number 40 Uh, a guy who is in kind of that hodgepodge of big men you know we mentioned guys like Ishmael Kamigate several times here on Draft Deeper. We talked about Walker Kessler last week. We're going to be hearing about more of these guys as this list continues to grow. But today, and at spot number 40, I have Christian Coloco. Admittedly, a guy who I think could outplay where I have him. I just drop bigs. I said it last week. They're, they're limited in where they can go and play. And with that being the case, like some of these teams already have dropped big. So it's like how much exposure and minutes and, and run is this guy going to get? I do like him defensively, but offensively, he's probably one of these guys that could be super efficient, but how much room to grow is there? You know, do you trust him uh, being able to go out on the perimeter? I, I really don't. I like him on the perimeter a little bit better than Kessler, which is why I have him ranked higher. But a guy who on his best days is going to be a great rim deterrent, a great rotational big, uh, a guy who I think locker rooms are going to love. You know, by all accounts, everything that I saw and heard coming out of Arizona, he's a great teammate. You know, players were sad to see him go, but also excited because that they know he offers a lot for an NBA team. I think that he's an NBA guy. I just don't know what level of output and production he's going to put. So that's why I have him here making the top 40, which is a big accomplishment for a lot of these guys, Nathan. I I have him in a very similar place on my updated board. And the reason behind that, I mean, we talked about a little bit last week with Walker Kessler. There's, yeah. there's bigs who are much better in, in drop coverage and having guys come to them. There's big men that can go out and, and, and go to their particular matchup. And then there's these rare guys that can kind of do a little bit of both. Right. And, Coloco is a more efficient offensive player than Kessler. Um, yeah. th- that that's that's not debatable. Just, just go look at the numbers if, if you wouldn't believe me. But and watch the tournament too. I mean, he he helped Arizona out a lot in the early going. 
but he's not he's not a post up guy, right? So that's that's not how you're going to be using him, and he doesn't have the same vertical leaping ability, in my opinion, that somebody like a Mark Williams has. Like he's not the plus Correct. athlete that Mark Williams is. So he's he's a little more limited in terms of how he's ultimately going to get you buckets at the NBA level. But defensively, when he is at his best in drop coverage, he can look really really good. Um, he's he's not the best rebounder of the bigs in this draft class, but he's serviceable. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, if teams are able to find creative ways to, to get him the ball near the basket and let him finish, then he can be a productive NBA player for you. Probably like a big man is going to be coming off the bench a lot of his career. I don't, I don't see the same starter upside with him as some of the other big men that we could talk about more and more notably. Mark Williams, so that's why I have Coloco in like that, that early to mid-second round range as well. Yeah, and I just I trust his second jump better than Kessler. I trust his uh, even though Kessler had a historic shot blocking season for Arizona, I don't know how much of that was was all personal ability instead of scheme or funneling or help having a guy like Jabari Smith Jr. defensively on that very same front court. So Coloco, I, I think that he gets kind of a, a bad rub that he is not a not an athlete. I couldn't disagree with that more. I, I actually like him more athletically than Kessler. It's just that it's a different feel. And I think that he kind of falls victim to that, you know, West Coast time zone where not a lot of people are staying up to watch Arizona as they are for Auburn. And shout out to Auburn for Johnny Broom, uh, you know, transferring over there. That's going to be a fun team to watch for next year for another Auburn big man that might be making his way to the NBA here soon. So Nathan, familiar name. We just talked about him last week here at 39. I already expounded upon his game. The only thing that I'll add is that I've watched his on-ball creation and playmaking a little bit more, which is why at his height... Letter, at, Letter Miller is who we're, we're talking about. Yep, out there. I, yeah. I was going to name drop it. I was going to name drop okay. him. But the the ball handling, the creativity with the passing, I think that there is a little bit of that same kind of gameplay as an Ushman Zhang, is that he's not as you know penetrable You know when he's got the ball in his hand, you know getting to that second level of the defense. I think uh, Ushman will be able to do a little bit better. But Leonard Miller, I'm not going to spend a lot more time on him because we talked about him last week, but he did make the leap to 39 specifically because with the, the intersection of height and on-ball skill, I think that that warrants in moving, moving him up a little bit more on the list. I- I wouldn't have even blamed you if you moved him up into the top 30. Um, not that you necessarily want to slap like a first round grade on him, but again, just to reiterate, I think he is going to go in the first round. So anybody yeah. who wants to put him there and they want to project more of what they feel NBA teams are going to do versus not just specifically and strictly their own opinions. I think that would be a smart play. So having him closer to that first round range, I don't, I don't mind that, that you moved him up a little bit, even though, you know, I may be in the same boat as you. I don't necessarily want to, slap the first round grade on him either but there's also just the reality of what NBA teams are going to be looking like he's a very raw prospect but you just look at his tools and how tantalized the potential can be that that usually just moves guys up into that first round territory so that's that's where I do think he's going to go yeah and sharing a little bit of my draft philosophy with the folks here at draft deeper I usually when there's a guy that and I kind of learned this from from Rucker a little bit is that when there's a guy oh, who's God, buzzing? Oh God, you learned something from Rucker. Oh no, I don't. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I know that we're not supposed to admit whenever Rucker is right, but you know, he had he's taught me a lot. And one of the things that I've I kind of shared, but the way that he explains it is much better than I than I ever could. Is that whenever there's a guy that that's buzzing, like I already I want to have the preconceived notion that I'm not gonna like him, and then I go into a game watching him saying, 
I'm, I'm not going to like you. What can you show me? And then Leonard Miller showed me something. <laughs> and then I was like, all right, cool. You showed me a little bit of something. Bet you can't do it again. Then I went back and watched him. He did it again. So I'm not going to say that this is a finalized spot on him because of how new on the scene that he is for me personally. Sure. But there is still a lot to like about him. So the 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 on-ball creation with the 6'10", 6'11", I think he gets an inch taller every every time I talk about him. But, you know, we moved him up. So we'll move on to another you know, shot creator, another guy that we trust with the ball in his hands. Nathan, you now, now both... we're really getting into the meat and potatoes of the big now we're this starting. Is, to... This is much more interesting. Now we're starting to hit some of these bigger names, like names that every team should at least have on their radar with a first round potential grade. That's where we're starting to get with these guys. You could have probably said the same thing about Coloco because of how NBA ready I think he is positionally. Yeah. Probably said the same thing about Leonard Miller. Now we can definitely say that about a guy. And Alondis Williams, we talked about him with great friend of the show. Um, love him to death. You know, Rashard Phillips, RP3, the great Yoda, hashtag Yoda. Um, Alondis Williams out of Wake Forest. Just a lot to love, man. Like when we went on the, you know, the the Topic Thunder podcast, Nathan, and they asked us, you know, the uh, superlative, who's the best passer in the draft? I think you and I both unanimously agreed that Alondis Williams is the best passer. And listening to you and Chuck talk about him and that, okay, like how much of this guy, how much is there that you can mold? How much of his game is malleable enough to where you say, all right, dude, like we get it. You can make these crazy passes, but it's almost like you do it to default. You know, there was one play, I can't remember who, who, who the entry pass was potentially going to be to, but he declined an, an easy entry pass for a bucket for a whip pass and it was a turnover. But I didn't, I didn't count that as like a, oh, no, like he's a bad decision maker. The fact that he's dynamic and talented enough and confident enough to be able to see and attempt that, I think that that speaks a lot to his game. Now, he's another one of these older prospects, Nathan, that is probably going to get a knock specifically because of his age. Defensively, I don't know where I like him on the floor. You know, like he he's big enough to be like a good guard defender, but I don't know if it, in certain lineups, if he's going to be asked to do too much out on the perimeter on some other positions. So that kind of limits him a little bit defensively to me. Um, he's kind of built like James Hard, you know, big barrel chest, a guy like maybe if there's a switch, you, do we like him on some of these kind of I think he's going to be fine from a team team defensive concept. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if he's – I agree with you. I don't know if he's like your ultimate answer at the point of attack. But yeah, in terms of just like fitting into a, a team scheme, I think he's ultimately going to be – fine at the NBA level because who knows maybe maybe he's never like this awesome starting NBA point guard although it wouldn't shock me if he got to that point but if he's one of these guys who you're primarily bringing him off the bench for the instant offense right yeah the the awesome transition explosive scoring the the wicked awesome passes where he can get everybody involved um, on a second unit or mixing and matching him between starters and and, and bench guys um, that's really why, in my opinion, you would draft him, not necessarily for a lot of the defensive stuff. So I, I, I know I know where you're going, but yeah. I don't think in, in his particular case it's going to matter as much because his offensive value could just tremendously outweigh um, the, the defensive stuff if you're playing him in more limited minutes. Absolutely. Just trying to give a quick, you know, overall breakdown of his game. 100% agree with you. You're not drafting Alondis Williams for his defense but speaking of his offense Nathan you know concerns about the efficiency on the jump shot like that that might be a real critique for him you know so how how improved can his jump shot be I think that there's a lot to like there 
in the long term. And again, depending on the team that takes him, they might be able to expedite, you know, the uh, the improvement on his jump shot. But his ability to get past, you know, the initial defender, you know, when it, I think that he's the most comfortable when the defense is gravitating to him. And then he can say, okay, like, do I want to take this guy off the bounce and finish myself? Or can I just make the defense look dumb for collapsing around me and kick it out to a teammate for an open jump shot? So a lot to like about him there. So the, th- the, the thing about the jump shot is he's, he's actually rated out good on jump shots off the dribble, 64th percentile for synergy. The other interesting statistic to know about his jump shot, when we talk about he's not the best spot-up player, right? Yeah. However, in unguarded catch-and-shoot situations, he rated out in the 53rd percentile, which would be good. He made 37% of those shots. That's really all you need him to do, in my opinion. Just from be okay. A jump shot yeah. perspective. Just be good enough to where you bring the defense out for that hard closeout, and then he can get around guys because he is that explosive off that first step. And once he gets into the next level of that defense, his passing vision is some of the best in the class. He can make passes at ridiculous angles once he gets into that next layer of the defense. So really, I don't need him to be this this spot-up killer like Malachi Brandon, for example. Correct. I just need him to be good enough in open catch-and-shoot situations to attract the defense and attract defenders to close out so that he can break through that next level. Yeah, we want him to keep defenses honest. We want want him to be respectable from deep. And if that's the case, is him being like a second or, you know, a third playmaker on a team, um, my goodness, like the, the potential is there. And I think that his athleticism kind of, you know, disrespectfully gets knocked. But, I mean, the amount of dunks that this kid has put up during the season is just flat oh, out. Oh, he small. wants to dunk over you. You can tell he was probably watching too many John Moran highlights at, at, at one point. It was like, man, if this is what I need to do to get on people's first round of boards, I'll do it. Yeah, I think this guy was made to play basketball in the, you know, the Gilbert Arenas. Baron Davis, you know, Steve Francis era of basketball. And it's fun that we're starting to see guards like these who just want to kill you when they have the ball in their hands in the NBA now. And Alondis Williams might be kind of that helping that next wave of, you know, I want to take you off the bounce and embarrass you guards. It's it's also kind of like a common theme too, before we move on to the next guy, sure. that like it's a lot easier to rein somebody in too than to teach them how to be more aggressive or how to be more creative on the offensive. You would rather rein in the creativity as opposed to trying to bring more out of a player that, that maybe it's not there for them. Maybe they're just not that type of guy on the court. So that's, I think, another reason why you and I would rather have a Londis. But not a reason that we would want to get a J.D. Davison because <laughs> he has a lot of physical things to like about him too, but the, the basketball ability is a little bit uh, questionable there. So We'll move on. We'll keep it nice. And Nathan, uh, how long do you want to talk about your guy here at 37? We got Christian Brown out of Kansas. You know, we we had a great I've show. hammered home my points, Stephen. You can I, I will just let you take the floor and then we can move to another guy. I, I've said my piece about Christian Brown. Yeah, I, I mean, he he's more your guy than he is my guy. I've had him flirting with late first round grades. I'm just I'm perfectly content with where I have him here at 37. I think that the off-ball potential with him is there. I don't know how much I want the ball in his hand, which is fine. Not everybody in the NBA is meant to be a creator with the ball in their hands, right? Um, defensively, he's okay. I'm not asking him to take on the other team's best player, but you know, if he's guarding like the fourth or fifth best player on a team, then he's probably going to be just fine in a team construct with that. You know, the three-point shot, is uh, is it, it turned around for him this season. 
would like to see him be a little bit more aggressive and actually hunt that shot a little bit instead of just, you know, taking that obligatory jab step to the right, dribble to the left, instead of just pulling up whenever he has a shot available to him. So confidence is not an issue with this guy at all. You know, we talked about that on the show that we broke down his game. I just, I think he's a pro. I just don't know at what level of a pro that you're getting him. And there's even the possibility that he goes back to Kansas too, Nathan. So that might've weighed in a little bit to where I have him. So that I got him here at 37. No, I got, I really don't have much of anything else to add to the conversation. And that's really, it's not because I don't want to talk about Christian Brown, but I think, you know, I, I've I made my did. positive points about him. Tyler Rucker's made his positive points about him. We had CJ Moore on the show to give us more yeah. insight as to who Christian Brown is as a person, not just a basketball player. He checks a lot of boxes, but if you don't buy more of the on-ball stuff, getting better in the half court, and you don't buy the jump shot as much as I would, for example, you're not going to have a first-round grade on him. And to be honest, I don't even have a first-round grade on him anymore. I have him okay. just outside the first. I have him like five spots higher than you do. So honestly, like, I, I, I don't knock where you have him. I think he's a top 40 guy for sure. sure. But mm-hmm. there's, there's plenty of valid reasons that are backed up by the numbers to not have a first-round grade on him. So I think overall you, you have him in, in a good range. Okay, well, I appreciate it. That makes me feel better about my evaluation there, Nathan. So we'll move to a prospect that we recently just discussed on the show with Jeff Polishek, who had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with these overtime elite prospects. At 36, I have Jean Montero, the guard from the overtime elite. Now, I even brought up one comparison on the, on that very show that I have been suppressing for a long time, but I can't hold it back anymore. Gives me a little bit of young Tony Parker vibes, man. You know, a guy who I don't know how much you trust the jump shot overall. Um, if you watch his overtime play, he had no problems taking a variety of different types of three-point shots off the dribble, guarded, unguarded, pull up from the parking lot, from right toe on the line. You know, he was experimenting a lot with that three-point shot. The finishing around the basket, I think, is kind of sneaky nice. And obviously the defense is something that you can fall in love with too. You know, he's not one of these big guards that is kind of all in vogue in the NBA. Now he's about six, one, six, two, a little bit slight of frame. has a lot of pro experience though. We talked about that on the, on the episode with uh, Josh, where you know, he has, excuse me, Jacob, excuse me. I'm getting all these J's mixed up in my head. Jacob Polishek, shout out to Jacob. Yeah. Come on. Uh, we can shout, shout out to Jacob, man. We can't, we can't, can't slide him like that. No, and he just released a, a great article on Zag's blog that I just read too. But um, back to John Montero. He, it's just we're going to learn a lot about how to evaluate overtime elite with how good John Montero does when he comes into the NBA. I, I compare it a lot to the first season of the G League Ignite, you know, where it's just hard to evaluate that wide of a chasm in talent that you're playing against on a consistent basis. And to his credit, Jean Montero was the big fish for the overtime elite, and he played like it. So it would be completely different if he looked out of his element when he went to overtime elite, but he didn't. So you put all that into a bottle, and you shake it up, and you pour it out. I got 36, Nathan. I don't know where you have him. I, I have him in a similar range. I think John is just to be one of these guys. He's going to go late first round to a really good NBA team. We're going to hope that that team figures out how to utilize them properly. You made the Tony Parker comparison that made 
not be too far off base because Tony Parker once upon a time went 28th um, yeah. in the first round of his respective draft. So it's not like John's going to be in, in not in a, in a non-similar range. Like that's probably where he's going to go. And the biggest questions, again, they come back to the jump shot, which is something that we asked Jacob. Jacob does buy into the jump shooting and he buys into more of the finishing creativity around the basket as well, which is that is Tony Parker's biggest selling point for his entire career was that he was one of the best under the basket finishers that we've seen at the guard spot in, in NBA history. Um, there, there's certainly a number of names that you throw into that basket modern. I, I don't want to say modern day, but I guess right now you you'd say Kyrie Irving is the best at that that we have in the NBA right sure. now, but you would put Tony Parker in that all time conversation um, with, with that skill set. So is, is John able to, get himself into that conversation one day that to me other than the the open three-point shooting will be the biggest thing will will that killer speed be able to be utilized more around the basket will he get a little bigger a little stronger and be able to finish over the trees or will some of that not be able to translate because he is turnover prone he can be a little wild with the basketball he has passing creativity but it's it's not in the same it's not the same to me as like what we talk about Alondes for example like Alondes has more of that vision to to match the creativity it's not just that Alondes is willing to just fling the ball all over the court spray it all over the place but he sees a lot of things that defenses honestly just don't see I don't know if John has that type of vision to back up some of the creativity which is why he's a little more turnover prone, can get a little loose with the dribble. So there are some question marks about him, but the natural raw talent, the speed at the guard position, and if more of the scoring and the shooting does come together, like we could be talking about somebody who ends up having top 20, top 14 type of value, like he was once projected to have in this draft. And for that reason, I'm actually kind of glad if he goes in like a late first, early second range, because he's probably going to go to a good team who will be better at figuring out how to properly use him than a lottery team that might not have as much talent. And, and then he kind of like, you know, falls into some of the similar bad habits that he did watching the overtime elite film. Yeah, we just don't want him to go to Brooklyn where they have point guards guarding power forwards because Kevin. That would not be good either. That would not be good. But, you know. I, I can't shake the, the the Tony Parker vibes. I'm not saying that, you know, John Montero equals Tony Parker, but there's a lot of similarities. No, I like the name. Like if, if he, if he hits his absolute apex, like we, we could be looking at a similar type of outcome. We can't project that these guys are going to win like as many championships as the Spurs did, but just in terms of like on court play style and production, yeah. like he could get to a similar point if he hits, I think there's just going to be a, a lot that needs to go into it for him to get there. But the fact that we can have that type of conversation about him, I think that the the range that he's in right now is is probably where he should be at. Fair enough. And we'll roll right into a no ceilings darling here at 35. We're talking about Santa Clara, Jalen Williams, uh, a a name that's rising up multiple outlets, uh, boards, uh, in particular ours as well. We haven't got to our latest big board war room yet, but I I have a feeling, Nathan, that Jalen Williams is going to come up higher than where I have him. He already did and for me. I can I can just spoil that for the for the folks at home. I, I have a first round grade on him. And Nathan, I'm going to tell you the truth. I could pick players 27 through 35 and rearrange them in any sort of order and sleep comfortably at night with where I have them. Like, I could have him as high as 28, but when we start getting to these names that I have above them, 
I think that the, the, the margin of talent, like is paper thin. It's like deli cut lunch meat, thin. how like close these guys are in, in, in talent. And if you go back and I said this at the time when I watched him play um, Chet Holmgren, he was not afraid to go at one of the best, like we're talking about Chet Holmgren as we should as a generational shot blocker. Jalen Williams attacked him off the bounce. Wasn't afraid of him. Oh, by the way, this guy's a great three-point shooter. Oh, by the way, he's a competent defender. Like, there's there's a lot to like about his game, but I don't know how much of what he showed at college is going to translate to an NBA level, to what we saw in college. I could think the shot is an NBA level. I think the team defense is an NBA level. I don't know about the shot creation, the attack you off the bounce being at an NBA level positionally. But I think as a rotational guy, potentially like fourth, fifth best guy in your rotation, I think that that is there for him. He's got NBA size too. It's just, again, when we get in this conversation of 28 through 35, I have mixed feelings about where I have them. I'll be completely transparent. I think the thing that's going to scare, potentially scare off NBA teams is just the fact that he's coming from Santa Clara. He's not yep. coming from a big time program. And, and that matters to some people. We talk about like who actually gets drafted in like that late first round range. It is generally guys from these power programs who maybe couldn't showcase all of their skills, right. At the college level, but NBA teams want to bet on them and take a chance because of where they ranked out. Like where, where were they RSCI? Where were they ESPN top hundred? What did that film look like? Those are, the types of bets the teams want to make in that range, not always the small school guys like Jalen Williams, probably if I had to guess would have like a very similar grade on NBA boards to where you have them. I'm buying a little more into the talent to have him firmly in the first round at this point. And honestly, the only real nitpick that I can bring to light, Steven is agreeing with you similarly to like the off the bounce stuff, just at the rim. Some of the at the rim finishing I, I, I've seen the clips where he can get off the ground off two feet. He can finish a dunk. Um, he's had some creative finishes, both with his right hand as well as his left hand. Yep. I just, the, the types of angles that he gets those shots off at and how difficult he makes some of those shots look. I don't know if all of that is going to translate at the NBA level, but at the same time, I don't really see NBA teams putting him in a position to finish those types of shots at volume at those difficult angles either. So like, that ends up becoming more of a nitpick than a true criticism, in my opinion. When you look at everything else he does well, 86 percentile scoring out of pick and roll, 97 percentile on spot ups, 83rd percentile in transition, 71st percentile in isolation sets. Pat numbers, including passes, look great. 86 percentile on runners, like his floater game. He actually has really nice yep. touch on a floater. And then the piece that really ties everything together, apart from the awesome pick and roll defense. I, I think that 34th percentile in terms of total defense rating is because Santa Clara was always the best defensive team as a whole. Jaylen defensive Williams, numbers are kind of like team skewed. Like people know that that's like we talked about that. Yeah. There. But mm-hmm. his individual defense of the pick and roll best, in my opinion, in the entire draft class, if, if you need something to do, okay. go watch Jalen Williams defend the pick and roll, but the offensive skill that ties everything together is the catch and shoot number 97 percentile and catch and shoot shots, 48% from the field on catch and shoot looks that shot is going to translate it's money it's butter and when you have a guy that lethal in the catch and shoot game who when he's run off of his spots can keep the ball moving can make make passes underrated passer 
If he gets to the basket, hopefully he can deploy some of those more creative finishes that we saw in college. And then defensively, I just think he's going to be a much better on-the-ball defender as well as a team guy, like you said, than initially given credit for. And he has the, the NBA size, the NBA body to come in and play multiple positions in the backcourt. So I think whether, whether he's a longtime starter or he's just like a really good bench guy for a good team to be able to deploy, I just, I just think he's a long-term NBA guy, man. And shout out to Tyler Rucker. Shout out to some other people in the mainstream draft space who have been in on him even, even longer than, than you and I have. It's, it's not about being first to the party. It's about realizing what goes into the evaluation, why the evaluation is the way that it is, and ultimately trying to get it right the, to the best of your ability. And I'm buying all in on Jalen Williams. I think he's a first-round grade. But like I said, you probably have him in a range that a lot of NBA teams do, so I don't fault you for where you have him. Yeah, and, you know, just people – that I trust in NBA circles who I know are making phone calls to front offices and things like that. NBA teams are, are liking him. Like they're, they're really looking forward to getting this guy in workouts and things like that. So he, it's not just a, a, a niche part of, you know, draft Twitter. So saying he's, that, he's, hey, he's, he's a, he's a locked top 40 guy in NBA front offices. Like that's, that's at, not up for debate. This guy's getting a guaranteed contract of some sort. Absolutely. So we'll move on from one Williams to another and that, is, of course, everyone at No Ceilings knows that I can't say this guy's name enough. Vince Williams Jr. out of Virginia Commonwealth. If you're playing Stephen Gillespie bingo at home, there you go. We got Vince there Williams you, Jr. off the board. You just won the lottery, my friend, because at 34, Nathan just – he does everything so daggone well. Like, he's 6'6". He played power forward for VCU. I think that he's got some – some three equity in the NBA. I, you know, he's a, he's a really good three-point shooter. He's a very, very, very good underrated passer, especially positionally. He might be the best, um, you know, four-man passer in this draft class. Um, he's an awesome defender. He switches. He He's good in the post. He's, he's stronger than he looks. He rebounds. It's just the only thing that I don't think that he's going to do and in the NBA is – pretty much anything where you're asking him to create with the ball in his hand outside of maybe a short roll or, you know, a, a dribble or two um, when being chased off the line. Like, that's it. I think that this is a longtime NBA guy. I liken him to players like Torrey Craig, you know, Jay Crowder, um, Dorian Finney-Smith, who we see, you know, it's exploding for Dallas right now because of the team construct around him. You know, he's a value contract in the NBA Vince Williams Jr. offers you a lot of those same things, does everything well, doesn't really do anything elite. But I think, you know, that versatility just positionally, I think is elite. Like if if you could classify like some sort of scouting, you know, niche thing, like how his versatility is elite, if that makes sense. Like not one category, I would say, like puts him over the edge, but positionally his passing might. This guy is just going to be able to do so much for an NBA team. Uh, I, I really like him a lot, Nathan. Yeah, you, you, you and I have different evaluations on him that you have more nicer things to say about him than, than I do. I don't think he's a bad player, and I don't think he's a bad prospect. I just – I would agree with you in that I think he's more of a gadget guy. And yeah. we look back at, at some of these drafts, and we go, what kind of draft capital are we putting into to a little echo to your, to your old show there, but yeah. what, what shout kind out of, to the rest <laughs> in peace, rest shout in out peace. to OG draft capital, but what, <laughs> what, what kind of draft capital are we putting into a guy who 
it's probably going to be a little bit of a journeyman throughout his yeah. NBA career, right? Like, I don't know if, if we're drafting this guy and we're definitely going to bring him in on an extension to get him to a second contract with the team who drafted him. I honestly don't have the answer to that question. Could it happen? Absolutely. Um, but, but guys, you brought up Dorian Finney-Smith. That's not a bad name. Mm-hmm. Dorian Finney-Smith has kind of they, they found a home in Dallas because they wanted to find ways to use him in the right ways. And I think that Vince Williams Jr. is a guy who can absolutely stick around in the NBA if a team's willing to sort of not 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 game plan for him, but but put him out there in ways to, to play to his strengths, if that makes sense. And if yeah. that's the case, he could provide value on on both sides of the ball. And really, we were talking about some guys in our group chat today, some of these older guys that are coming from these smaller schools. And I know we, we didn't have Jalen Williams in that mix. Um, but we could have technically very well could have to an extent, not a senior, but an an older guy, quote unquote, in the draft class, technically. But Vince Williams Jr. would would be in that conversation of guys who I could see outperforming potential draft stock because his defensive impact is really, really what what brings me to him the most. Um, I get some of the offensive stuff. I don't know if the jumper is going to be as good at the NBA level as it's been advertised. Like, does the jumper get to like a Dorian Finney-Smith level? Like Dorian Finney-Smith, although he can't really do a lot off the bounce either, which is why I kind of like that comp. Finney-Smith did become like, at at times, like he can be a potential microwave, like nuclear type of catch and shoot guy. Like that dude can get hot and he can stroke it in a hurry. And I think that's more, more or less why he stuck around in Dallas and has played such a key role for them along with everything he brings to the table defensively. So can Vince Williams Jr. be that type of shooter in the NBA because you're not going to trust him to do all the same things off the bounce offensively? That would be the biggest holdup for me. But I agree with you. If you're not asking him to do too much with the ball in his hands, he can be a play finisher. He can be hopefully a catch-and-shoot guy. Um, He can be a guy who he's not making all these awesome passes on the move, but he can keep the ball moving from his spots, if that makes sense. So there – there are a lot of things to like, and I recognize them. I just don't know if I want to spend a top 35 pick on that guy. It might, I think it's more just a difference in philosophy between us, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you, if you have a guy who you will openly admit may have a higher ceiling than a Vince Williams Jr., but could yeah, be out of some, the, some of these, some of these guys, I just might want to take they more could, of a bet on somebody. They could be out of the league in a year or two. Whereas they could be out of the league. We talk about guys like Jay Crowder, you know, um, Torrey Craig and Dorian Finney-Smith. Like, sure, these guys might be journeymen, but every playoff team wants them. You know, there's value to that. You know, let's so not I, forget though, Jay Jay Crowder was a star at Marquette. Well, when we throw that name around, that dude did a lot with the ball in his hands at, at Marquette, probably than the given credit for. So I know, sure. I know, I know, off ball NBA contender Miami Heat, Phoenix Suns, Jay Crowder's like. He's a different Cleveland, player Utah, you know, all of those, you know, different role, different player, but to his credit, like some of these guys who come in and ultimately play these roles in the NBA, they did a lot more in college than they were initially given credit for. They didn't come into the NBA, the same player as like a Vince Williams Jr. For example, who we already have some of these questions about sure. some of the on ball type of creativity. We didn't have those questions in the same way when we were evaluating like college Jay Crowder, for example, he kind of had to come in and ultimately scale down his role. Yeah. We already sort of have that answer about somebody like a Vince Williams Jr. So that leaves some of the upside a little more capped in my opinion than some of the other guys we've talked about. For sure. But when we're talking, and for me, like when we're talking about like NBA role, like that's kind of like where I see him at his like peak value, I I think is probably Jay Crowder. Like if everything hits right, 
you're getting a, a guy who every NBA playoff team wants and he could add value there. So yep. we'll move on now to 33 to a player who I have said, and I will eat crow right now because I have said all season long that Wendell Moore Jr. is a first round talent in the NBA. I wrote about him on, you know, the, the weekend warrior. I said, what more do you want? He could still very well prove me wrong. But again, 28 through 35, depending on the day, like I could feel differently. Like I don't feel good about where I have one no more. I want to put him higher. But when we're talking about a guy who we're kind of at a question with him that we talk about with tweeners at the three and the four or the four and the five and how that's not good. Like it's a little bit more forgivable for Wendell Moore Jr. to be like, is he a one, two, maybe even in some lineups, a three. It's more forgivable on the perimeter to be able to do that. But is he ever going to be a, a guy that you say, let's run some offense through him? I'm not sure. But what I can tell you is that he is going to be another one of these three and D guys. He is going to be a good connector piece. And he's probably going to play in the NBA for a long time. And again, when we're talking about ceiling versus floor, how volatile of a prospect are you willing to take a swing on? I think Wendell Moore Jr. is one of these more safe guys, like one of these singles that, that we talk about, Nathan. That's what, I, that's what I look at him at at the NBA because at 6'5", 6'6", ball handling, three-point shooting, good positional defender, um, some creation ability, but I don't think that that's going to be you know his bread and butter in the NBA. I feel a little bit safer taking him at 33 than I do at 29 or 30. He's one of these guys I think that we've, we've pegged all year in, in private circles when we have some of these leagues that we do as a guy who – we think he's likely to go in the first round because an NBA mm -hmm. team is just going to take a swing on the fact that he made some drastic improvements from a scoring perspective this year. And he's one of these guys who, yeah, he's a junior in college, but he's still young for a yeah. junior. So I think those two things are really going to work in his favor. But I think the highest selling point for Wendell Moore when he was being talked about as like a top 20 pick, is this a guy who, as you said, can you funnel enough offense through him to justify him growing into like a third option type of role on an NBA team? Or is he much better as kind of like a guy who you, you may, maybe you bring him in off the bench or maybe he's like your, your fifth option in a starting lineup and he's there to just kind of get to certain spots and you're able to get him some open shots and at his best, he can make those open shots. That could be true for him if a lot of these spot-up improvements, a lot of these catch-and-shoot improvements, like if he's as good by the numbers as he was in those particular areas uh, in the NBA as he was this past year, then he's a first-round pick. Um, but, again, we, we can't really sell the creator role for Wendell Moore at yeah. the next level. And I know that he took over a lot of the lead ball handling duties earlier in the year for Duke. But there's a point where some of the numbers turned on him and some of the efficiency and the tape really turned on him in that role. Like, Duke kind of had to turn the keys over to Jeremy Roach and then to an extent, Paolo Vancaro as well. To Absolutely, Paolo Vancaro. For, for that team. But And then when we saw Wendell Moore able to play off of other people and yep. show more of, hey, if I get to this spot, I can make this shot, that's when he looked like a much better player, when he was able to kind of step into some of those mid-range type pull-ups, when he was able to catch open threes, catch open, catch the ball from the corner and hit like these open threes. Like that's when he looked like a much better version of Wendell Moore. If that's the player that we're getting at that efficiency, great. Let's slap the first round green on him. If he regresses to an extent in some of those areas shooting basketball, then you kind of get to like that second round territory on him. So really it's, 
how much do you trust the improvement in the spot up game in the catch and shoot game if you do take them in the first round if you have questions you probably do feel better about taking him like anywhere from 30 to 35. Yeah. And he very well still could be a first round guy, depending on players that could be one that want to withdraw their name. You know, I mean, like I, depending on who declares and stays for this draft, he could work his way in there. I just, I feel more comfortable at 33 than I did, you know, maybe a week or so ago, Nathan. So moving to 32, I didn't think that this was going to happen, but it happened. I have, Kendall Brown as a second round player. Now he is at like the top 1% of this draft class in terms of just like explosive athleticism. Nathan, I've said it all year long. He's a guy that has to try harder to stay on the ground than he does having to jump in the air. Um, But as a guy who was tabbed as a defender, he lost a lot of his luster on that side of the ball. Uh, We talked about the the 10 assist game. I don't know if he had a three assist game after that. Uh, the shooting had a false bottom, as everyone pretty much suspecting uh, that that it did at the beginning of the season when I think he was at like 72% or something like that within like the first month of the season. Uh, because when that volume kind of ticked up, we saw that it went away. A player that lost a lot of confidence, in my opinion, as the season went on. And when you're not confident and there's questions, like, sure, there's potential there, but like, to some people, potential are red flags, and that's kind of where I am now with Kendall Brown. There's just a lot more players that I trust who I think have more confidence in their game and know who they are as a basketball player, and I, I don't know if I could say the same thing about Kendall Brown right now. I came down on Kendall Brown as well, and it took me quite a while to get to that point, but especially in the tournament. I mean, we saw Jeremy Sohan just absolutely take off in some respects in the tournament. It's not that he was, you know, shooting the absolute lights out of the ball or like putting up like 25 plus points, but like he's just so much more coordinated of a ball handler, of a decision maker, of a guy who you can trust both on and off the ball defensively. And Kendall Brown, there was a point in the year where he was incredibly hyper-efficient right Mm -hmm. from all of all kinds of numbers you can look at he was incredibly hyper efficient and to this day at the end of the season he rated out the 89th percentile in terms of total offense on synergy you want to know why because he was in the 83rd percentile in transition he's in the 94th percentile on cuts and that's all he did at, at, at a very good or excellent level you look at everything else spot up shooting um putbacks getting involved in the offensive glass pick and roll type of sets Uh, Those numbers, including passes, shooting jump shots, like unless he had an open lane to the basket, he really wasn't doing much of anything else. And to his credit, I think there is still more to be unlocked with the passing. Like, I don't don't think that I don't think the double digit assist game was just like a pure fluke out of absolute nowhere. But in order to be able to take advantage of that passing creativity, you have to be a threat to score the basketball. Otherwise, teams are just going to know that you want to pass. And they're going to play to that. They're going to force. They're going to force turnovers. They're going to turn you over. And then you couple in those offensive concerns with the fact that defensively he was pretty much average to below average over the course of the entire year off the ball. He was an absolute mess. And I do believe these defensive metrics because there are a number of defenders on Baylor who rated out well defensively yeah. uh, per the synergy metrics. But I believe the percentiles for Kendall Brown, thirty-first percentile in terms of total defense. Man defense, 20th percentile. When you have those that many series of offensive questions along with the little to no impact defensively, 
other than every now and then you're able to play a passing lane or get a quick hand on the ball. Like why, why do I need to necessarily take you any higher than like the top or take you in like the top 25 of the draft? Like, why do I need to take you higher? Um, I'm really struggling to come up with a good reason why other than just the, the very raw athletic tools. And that's not going to get it done. He's, he all of a sudden became one of these players who I wish to go back to school for yeah. another year. And quite frankly, I can still see that being the case because uh, he, he, man, he would really have to shoot the piss out of the ball in workouts for, for me to believe that NBA teams are going to have comfort taking him with a top 20 pick when this guy was at one point projected top 10. Why and if you're you advising him and if you're advising him, do you want him taking jump shots in a gym in front of scouts, Nathan? I think you kind of have to, you got to at one point prove whether you can, you know, make the shots. And I would certainly hope he's making all of his jump shots in, in an open gym setting. Um, but we see the, Josh Minot, we see Josh Minot putting out jump shooting videos right now. Like I haven't seen anything on Kendall Brown. There's just, there's just too many question marks to the point where I, I'd be shocked if him and his agent really wanted to settle on where his draft stock is at right now why not work on a whole bunch of different things over the summer, get the feedback from testing the waters that you need, come back to school for a second year, put more of your offensive game together, show that you can be better defensively. And then, then maybe we're starting to talk about him in, in some of the same ranges that we were at the beginning of the year. But yeah, it's, Nathan, we'll, I had we'll this guy, settled. I had this guy like fifth at one point. I yeah, think we it was had like, like sixth, January seven, yeah. or February. I had him in my top five. That's you what know? happens when you don't see, when you don't see enough guys right off the bat. You kind of only have so much film to, and so many numbers to, to work off of but now that we have the full season's worth and we kind of kept asking ourselves like is he going to show more is he going to show more is he going to show more and he never did and when it's it's one thing to talk about potential versus production when there are enough reasons to believe that even if some of the production wasn't there some of the flashes warranted buying into further production down the road in a lot of respects we didn't even get that with Kendall yeah. Brown this year. So like, that's when you really have to do as you're doing with your board, Steven, and bring production in as, as more of a weight than it could be for some of these other prospects. So I don't, I don't, I don't blame you for having them where you do. Like I can't come up with a defense to have them any higher than like, I think 26 or 27, which is where Sam Bassini and Matt Penny just took them on, on a mock draft podcast over at game theory. I can tell you right now, you're going to like who I have directly in front of him at 31 and that's Bryce McGowan's and Nathan, I'm telling oh, you the boy. truth. When I say this, I tried, I tried so hard. I tried so hard to get him in my first round. Like I understand the create and let's, let's, let's speak glowingly of him. I don't even want to talk about anything bad with him because I do like him this much. Like a guy who doesn't have great three point shooting, but can attack the basket the way that he does. Nathan, I compared him to DeMar DeRozan. Like, I, I think that there's a lot of similarities there. Like, he may not ever be a great three-point shooter, but you're, pre still, you're preaching to the choir with that comp. Come on, man. You're pre pre preaching to the choir. His drive, like his attacking the basket, his, um, you know, even though he's a little bit more slim, his ability to get past the initial defender, the finishing ability is there. The free throw ability is there. Because of his team, like I want to believe that the passing ability is going to be unlocked even even more with better spacing and, and you know a more open floor and better teammates around him. Uh, you know, defensively, there's there's concerns there. You know, Demar Derozan wasn't really ever one to to be a top notch level defender, so there's similarities there. I just when I get to the names that I have in front of him, it's just really really hard for me, man, to 
to fight to put him up any higher. But again, from 28 through 35, like he, he, I might have him at 28 at some point, but I do love Bryce McGowan's for a lot of the same reason, Nathan. I believe we're watching the same guy. I just think this is where draft philosophy comes in and why you're more high on him than I am. Yeah, I've I've said on multiple fronts that like I have a top 20 grade on him. And as I talked about with Chuck on the last podcast, I think it's one of the more risky propositions you can make in the top 20. There's a very realistic chance where his basement floor, he bottoms out even lower than where you have him on a board right now. Not everything comes together for him. I've seen enough, though, from a confidence standpoint. And like we wanted to talk about on some other podcasts, that confidence really matters to me. The fact that he's willing to go inside and get get around the basket and take a beating and get to the line, that really matters for me. The fact that he's confident and willing to pull up on those mid-range jumpers, on those catch-and-shoot looks, that matters to me. These guys who are 6'7 with the length, who can shoot over defenders, not just rely on going through somebody or over them, but shoot and score over them from the perimeter. Like these are the types of guys that NBA teams are looking for these legitimate, legitimate three level scores. But a lot of it is theoretical for him right now. Yeah. And that's, that's where I don't, I don't know where he's going to go on draft night. I'd like to believe that some of the buzz that I'm, that I'm hearing from behind the scenes, the NBA teams are looking at him with like a top 15, top 20 pick. I'd like to believe that. But if he's one of these guys that falls on draft night, I'll understand why. Because the best Bryce McGowan's that I can talk about by the numbers and by good portions of the tape is theoretical than, than anything else. Like comparing him to DeMar DeRozan, like old, like Toronto Raptors, DeMar yeah. DeRozan, like very young in his career, DeMar DeRozan, like that's great. But DeMar DeRozan has gone through evolutions in his career that I don't know if Bryce McGowan is going to go through in his career either. Like the passing is unbelievable from DeRozan later in his career. Like talk about yeah. the transformation he made in San Antonio in particular to now come to Chicago where you can quite literally run your entire offense through DeMar DeRozan. He's not just a pull-up scorer. He's so much more than that. Um, that's a level I don't know if that's in the cards for, for Bryce. As, as lethal of a scoring threat as he could turn into in time, how lethal of a pure offensive scoring threat. I don't know if some of these other things on offense are going to come together for him as well as the defensive concerns that, that you and I, as well as others probably share. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see who takes him and who has a really firm plan in place to be able to develop him. Otherwise yep. he's one of these guys who I could see slipping through the cracks. Yeah. And just, uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again, but I'm start- buying, I'm betting on the gallons offense. But. I, I know you are. And here's <laughs> again, you know, kind of playing into the philosophy piece of it. If you're a late first, early second round guy, unless you're blowing it away, like unless you're blowing your coaches out of the water with how great you are doing in your practices, shout out to Herb Jones again. Uh, if you're not blowing them away to where you're just like, all right, we got to get this kid on the floor. Like he's just doing too good in practice. You're not getting the ball in your hands. And that's where I get afraid for, for Bryce McGowan's is, you know, the team that drafts him, you said it best, Nathan, the team that drafts him has to have a firm plan in place because you don't want to take away what he does best, which is playing with the ball in his hands. He's, I don't think that an off ball role for him is best suited early on in the, in his NBA career. He has to have some reps as a creator in order for him to reach his like absolute peak value. And it's got to happen early. 
but he can do things off the ball though. He like his, his catch and shoot numbers were good. I think he can be a better cutter. Like there are things and, and his transition, his, his ability to finish and trick, like there are things he can do yeah. off the ball to provide value immediately. But I agree with you. That's not the version of Bryce McGowan's you want to draft. You want to draft the on ball three level dynamo Bryce McGowan's. Yeah. And I trust him more off the ball than I do Blake Wesley. And I'll leave it at that. So rounding oh, out, man. rounding out the segment, Nathan, um, another no ceilings favorite. I wanted to have him higher. He could very well go higher. Like we might talk about this guy next week. I'm just, again, just real quick, like shout out to the show for next week because I'm excited to get into some of these other names. But rounding out at number 30, I have Jake LaRavia out of Wake Forest. Nathan, we, we, we've talked about him. Chuck's talked about him. Um, everybody at No Ceilings talked about him. Corey Tolba had a great interview with him and Kevin McCuller, a great video. Um, great audio to listen to just insight that we're getting about this guy, what he's working on in his downtime right now before the draft. Just, I love him, man. Like I, I watched the Duke film and I'm just like, okay, this guy has the defensive versatility to guard Paula Boncaro effectively and Trevor kills. You're talking about a four and a one at the collegiate level, both have NBA draft prospects and Jake LaRavia. Oh, by the way, he's younger than what we thought. So if that's important to you, he's not 22, he's 20. So that might vault him up automatically because all of a sudden he's a better player and younger now. Um, but overall, man, like Jake Laravia does so much. He, he He's 6'8", he's bigger than Vince Williams Jr. But he get to me, he gives you a lot of the same things, but he's bigger, younger. And I, I like his on-ball creativity a little bit more than Vince Williams Jr. So a lot of the same roles and responsibility, in my opinion, between the two players, but he's bigger, younger. I think that he's got a little bit more on-ball equity. And if you're a firm believer in the jump shot, which it sounds like you're going to be, Nathan, from everything that I've heard when I've hear, you know, heard you speak about him or write about him, I think that there's just way too much that this kid has going on right now to where he's not going to be at least a first-round pick. So right now I have him 30. Next week, Nathan, we might talk about him a little bit more. I might slide him up. I've got him in the same spot um, and I won't say too much about his game because you and I have broken it down and I just talked to Chuck on the last episode yep. to, to get great show by the way shout out game. to Chuck shout out to uh, Chuck he's the best we, we we know we know Chuck's the legend your your friend and mine uh, I'm like so sad Chuck. by the way that I couldn't tell my uh, Jabari Walker joke to him on the show about like there, you can't name 60 players better than Jabari Walker. It's like, yeah, but you might be able to name 57. You know? I got it in for you, though, Stephen. I got it I, in for I you. Heard, I heard. The, 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 the one thing I'll say about LaRavia before we, before we cut this podcast to, to an end is that I think Sam Vecini on that mock draft podcast that, that I referenced that he just released with Matt Penny, him taking him at 23 on that yeah. mock, I think is, is more of an indication, not just in his line of thinking, but also really in – where NBA front offices are going to view um, a, a forward oh, yeah. like him with that much skill. Like Sam, Sam talks to enough people behind the scenes where he doesn't just pull those comments and those evaluations out of nowhere. He's pretty right? plugged in. Yeah. He's, he's, he's fairly <laughs> plugged in. I, I, I would say. So I think the more teams get to view some of these workout videos that are coming out when they get to see him um, in different workout settings, I think they're going to dig back even harder into the film and they're going to see a lot of the tools that you and I were, were, were able to notice. And I, I know Chuck likes to say, they're like, oh, if you're watching the film, like he's one of these guys that will stand out to you. Like he's not going to stand out to you in the same way that Alondis Williams will though. Like no. you, you, you do have to, 
notice more nuanced things when it comes to the appreciation for LaRavia. Like the you have to be stuff, watching specifically for LaRavia to appreciate his entire game. Yeah, the the, the defensive stuff is a, is a little more nuanced, um, and, and it's not as apparent. And there are areas where he can improve defensively. But yeah, if you if you're buying into the jump shot with him, if you're buying into the high basketball IQ, maybe not the the, the passing on the move, but similar to what we said with Vince Williams Jr., just be able to keep the ball moving. Mm-hmm. If you buy into a lot of these things and the versatility at that, at that size with what he can project to be, which is an awesome, awesome role player, that's the type of guy that that breaks into top 30s and, and goes in the first round. So that's I, – I think you and I both have him in a good place, and I know that many of our no-ceilings cohorts are also going to have him as a first-round grade more likely than not. So I just – I just think that's where we're trending. I think that's where we're going. And I do think he goes um, in the first round on draft night. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Like, Nathan, I'm super looking forward to our next war room where we're talking about him because, you know, we, we brought him up in the early second round. I think he went a little bit later than I wanted him to because even at, at our last war room, you know, I was, I was really big. I wanted to prioritize him going to – you know, an early second round grade, but now, you know, that guys have got to see him more in person, that guys have made their rounds on watching him a little bit more. I think that his name is going to brought it is going to be brought up even before, like I'm ready to be comfortable with, but I'm growing on him. He's another guy that I'm prioritizing watching again on this, on my next round of film. I just want to make sure that my late first round is good. Cause Nathan, like I'm pretty happy with where I am in my lottery process right now, but before we wrap up the show, just a quick recap, Nathan. I'll go through 45 through 30. At 45, I had Justin Lewis. At 44, Caleb Houston. 43, Max Christie. 42, Keon Ellis. 41, Trevor Kills. At 40, I had Christian Coloco. 39, the return player, Leonard Miller. At 38, I had Alondis Williams. At 37, your friend, Christian Brown. At 36, I had Jan Montero. 35, Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara. At 34, I had my favorite player in the entire draft, Vince Williams Jr. I have my second favorite player at 33, Wendell Moore Jr. 32, Kendall Brown. 31, I had Nathan's favorite player in Bryce McGowan's. And then our friend, Jake LaRavia, at number 30. I'd say that's that's quite the section of the big board that we talked about tonight, Stephen. It, it only gets better from here. We keep Man. breaking into more meat potatoes i already know that you and i are gonna have a few fighting words as we, as we keep moving <laughs> through through the last two episodes of this big board series with your big board um mm-hmm. but this was this was another dynamite podcast my friend I, I certainly know that you put in as much work as i do in terms of evaluating these guys and, and slotting everybody on your board accordingly and i appreciate the work and the viewpoints that you bring to this and again that's I'll just reiterate. That's why I wanted you to, to take over these episodes and make sure that your board was featured because different perspectives need to be talked about on this podcast. If, if you're exclusively listening to this podcast for my thoughts and my opinions, I'm glad you're here, right? Like we, I, yeah. I want to create content. I want the views. I want the clicks, but that's not how we get better at doing this, myself yep. included. That's why I think this, this their guys or, or his guys or her guys or whatever series that we've been doing on the draft deeper podcast, I think has been an incredible learning tool because it's bringing other guys to the forefront that we maybe wouldn't feature on a podcast. And then having these conversations around your board, Stephen, not just my big board again, where we're giving people opportunities to see different viewpoints and, and learn. And that's, that's what I want this podcast to be. I don't just want it to be clickbait content 
about the top guys. I want this to be a very deep and comprehensive draft podcast where we're learning about a number of guys and we're getting better at the evaluation side of it, not just the who's who in the draft. Yeah, you got to look, man, like variety is the spice of life. You know, if you're stuck in your echo chamber, you're never going to grow. Like Nathan, you, you put that perspective beautifully. Like if all you're listening to is your own thoughts, like how do you expect to get better at anything? How do you expect to grow? How are you ever going to learn that you could potentially be wrong? You know, like between you and I, Nathan, I, I would like to think that we're going to hit on a lot of our evaluations, but guess we're, what? Oh, it's, just, we're going to get the NBA draft. Wrong. We're going to eat so much crow, but we like crow. We like the way it tastes. You well, this this it. this draft in particular, though, we're we're going to get a lot wrong with this one. This is this is going to be a wild and, and wacky draft, and we're gonna I we're gonna learn a lot of lessons looking back at this one, like four or five years from now, more so than the last like two or three drafts. I'm looking forward to being like, and that's what the crazy thing, Nathan. Like in in my prior draft classes that I've evaluated, like. I would be mad if I was wrong. Like, I can't wait to find out like what I can learn from from this draft class in particular, because if you can if you can get these evaluations correct in this one and you can and you can learn the lessons that we're going to from this one, when we hit some of these bigger ones where not saying that this draft class isn't important, I think you and I agree, like there's going to be a lot of NBA players coming out of this class. Next next we, class, I think, is where you're going, where there's a lot more top yes. projected talent that's quote unquote easier to see their NBA role slash potential. Yeah, hopefully you will take away a lot of good lessons from from this draft class. But yeah, I, and I we'll like hit on doing. and we'll hit on and we'll hit on sleepers in that class like that other people would likely just be like, oh, well, this guy's like a shoe in at this spot. like. We can get a little bit more cute and a little bit more correct on, you know, bigger, heavier draft classes. And I'm looking forward to it, man. And do as Chuck said, watch the playoffs, learn lessons from the playoffs and from NBA, but you can't, you can't get better at being a scout without watching NBA basketball. And honestly, I've done a very poor job of that myself this <laughs> season. I need to do better at that going Same. into next year. I've taken, I think a little bit too much time watching and, and, and mulling over some of the tape on these guys rather than, paying more attention to the program and, and actually figuring out what styles, what trends are really working. Um, but I've been locked in to the playoffs this year, absolutely much more than I was during the regular season. So hopefully I can bring some new, some new fresh ideas to the table as we keep going between now and the rest of the draft. But that's going to do it for this episode of the draft deeper podcast, Steven, thank you as always for, for hopping on and, and being the co-host that I deserve my friend. So definitely let the people know where they can find you as you always do. Well, and again, man, like I'm having a blast being the, the co-host here on draft deeper, you know, again, I'm sorry. I missed the episode with Chuck. Y'all were phenomenal. Um, definitely can't wait to do some more work with him on draft deeper and I'm um, looking forward to the shows that we have coming down the line, man. But for people who want to follow me, I'm the most active on Twitter. You can follow me at Steven G hoops. That's Steven with a PH, the letter G and then hoops. Uh, you can find my written work on noceilingsmba.com where my most recent article um, just dropped harping on Ron Harper Jr. as my featured prospect. I also have, you know, early playoff entrants listed on there, like names that I think are going to matter for this upcoming draft class. And then also some of the transfer names that um, have been in circulation that you're, you're not really hearing a lot about because we're focusing on the draft, but these are going to be future draft players. They're going to affect the players that you're going to be watching next year. So go read that article. I also had my prelude where I talked about why ageism is gross and how, you know, good NBA teams are good NBA teams because they draft regardless of age. You know, they might not draft them top five or 
whatever, but they certainly have staying power in, in redrafts. Like a Herb Jones might be, I don't know what, like the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth pick, like somewhere in that window. So, you know, don't be afraid to draft a guy because he's, oh my goodness, 22 years old. But anyway, all my written works on NoSealingsNBA.com. Um, you can hear me here on this show um, with this lovely co-host here, Nathan Grubel. Shout out to Kevin Black as the best producer in the game. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much it, man. And definitely thank you as always for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the Draft Deep podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you're following me on Twitter as well, at Draft Deeper. Make sure you're following No Ceilings NBA on Twitter and subscribing to NoCeilingsNBA.com. By the time you will have listened to this podcast, like, I see, like Steven said, he published his Weekend Warrior, did an incredible job with that. Um, I will have a piece out on Michael Foster Jr. as well, one of my favorite second-round quote-unquote hidden gems that I'll be going into a little bit in my written work. And then coming up later this week on the podcast, Stephen will be in the co-host chair, host helping me host Bryce from Motor City Hoops. We're going to talk all things Detroit Pistons as I get ready to ramp up into some final rookie and sophomore coverage on the year. Some of that writing will be over on those ceilings. And then Dakota Schmidt's also going to be coming on this man. podcast later in the week. Speaking of draft deeper, man, all the sickos, please come out for that show because we, I, I know some of the names we're going to talk about. Them. We, we are cutting deep, my friends. We're going to live up to the draft deeper mantra on that show. Dakota Schmidt, if you don't follow his work over at the call up, um, go, go subscribe to his Substack. He's doing incredible work on all things G League, as he's done, as well as covering uh, multiple different deep draft storylines. So definitely make sure you pay attention and, and watch out for that one. But until and also, then, and also real quick, Nathan, if you, by the time you're listening to this, I believe our guys, Corey and Rucker will have the latest episode of on the clock available on our YouTube channel at no ceilings TV. So we had the grand unveiling of that last week. It was awesome. Um, it's good bite-sized piece of, if you like, pardon the interruption, it's a lot of that same style and feel where, Corey and Rucker are debating with one another on different aspects of the draft and, and prospects. So believe the latest episode is going to be out by the time you're listening to this. So go over to our YouTube channel at no ceilings TV and watch the latest episode of that. Subscribe everywhere. No ceilings NBA. Absolutely. But until then, thank you all for listening. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Later guys. Mm-hmm.